Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And here we are again for another Listener Mail episode <laughs> where we get all of the beautiful magic that you send us through the internet. We wrap it up in a tight little bundle and we set it on fire. No, wait a minute. No, we read it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, you know, Carney, our mailbot, goes through it first and then uh, deems what uh, is appropriate for our eyes and then brings it to our eyes. Man, um, he deemed some really good stuff this time. There yeah. are some great letters here. Well, yeah, because this is incorporating, of course, our October month, so a bunch of stuff about monsters. It's right. going to be incorporating all the drug stuff about Timothy Leary, and right. it's going to be incorporating all the responses to the bicameral mind episodes, of which there were about 10 billion. I was going to yeah. say, people, that's like a, a hit. Like, you guys got a ton of mail for that episode. So well, there, there are two episodes, right? Yeah, it was a two-parter back in September, and... Uh, I don't – I feel like I've gotten more listener mail about that one than any other one we've ever done. Is, would, would you agree, Robert? Um, I mean, I, I, I'm hesitant to compare it to everything, but we did receive a lot of uh, feedback on that one. It's as if they – it's as if you and I spoke to them uh, through their minds, you know, uh, like gods. Uh, well, we we do get at least one message today of somebody telling us we're their gods. So, <laughs> so we're doing nice. something right there. All right. Well, uh, on that note, let's let's begin to roll through it. If if you have not listened to a listener mail episode from us before, basically what we're going to do is we're just going to go around the table here and we're going to take turns reading listener mails from you, and then we're going to discuss them a little bit. Uh, you know, sometimes it invites discussion; other times it's just like, well, there you go. That's the that's the the listener statement right there, and there's not much uh, additional to add. What I love about listener mail episodes, though, is that like it's a grab bag in that like we get to revisit these topics that we've already covered in the last few months, but then just bring them all together and what we've learned from them and what the audience has learned from them into this like goulash. Also, it makes me feel great because y'all out there, you're just so smart. You've got great things to say. I mean it. Come on. I yeah, love yeah. reading our mail. Yeah, we have some uh, some very in- and very insightful listeners. Uh, sometimes you guys make connections that, uh, that we don't uh, yeah. when we're researching this stuff. Totally. All right. Well, Carney has, uh, has ventured forth. He is uh, holding something out here to Christian. Christian, uh, uh, why don't you read us our first listener mail? Oh, this one is glorious. It might be <laughs> one of my favorite letters that I've received on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, it's from Rick, and it is about our two-parter on Timothy Leary and LSD. Uh, he writes to us, and he says – this is a bit long, but I, I think it's worth reading oh, it's the worth whole it. thing. Uh, He says, I'd like to respond to the Tim Leary podcast, so I will. Here are my credentials. In 1966 or so, I hung out with Leary, dropped acid with him, threw him out of our teepee one night when he got drunk and hit on my wife. We were living in New York City then. I worked as a mime and a fire eater at the Electric Circus on St. Mark's. (laughs) We answered a casting call for a film being shot at the Hitchcock Estate in Millbrook, home of the LSD League for Spiritual Discovery, which we discussed in that episode. Uh, we lived there for a couple of months. That's how we met Leary. When later the film project fell through, we took our pay in the form of one of a number of teepees and sets of poles, which had been made for the film. We pitched the teepee on a friend's land near Poughkeepsie and spent lots of time off there. That's where I threw Leary out. <laughs> in the years following our sojourn with LSD, I relocated to the sunny southwest, went to medical school, and worked for over 25 years as an ER doc. I recently 
retired. In many ways, this trajectory was the fulfillment of ideas and ideals born in vision during acid trips. To the extent your podcast was focused specifically on Leary, you got it mostly right. Leary was a deeply flawed man, but... So have been many important explorers, writers and spiritual teachers and cult leaders and philosophers. He's kind of a bit of all those things, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, Leary was not by any measure the worst of these in terms of egocentrism, greed, and especially womanizing. Leary did have many important insights regarding human spirituality and was better able than most to explain these to would-be psychonauts. I first heard him speak with Richard Alpert in San Francisco, I think, in 1964. Elsewhere, I have referred to Alpert and Leary as the Abbott and Costello of the psychedelic scene. <laughs> That's, that's how they sounded in our research, too. But in any case, I and many others were galvanized by the possibilities they floated before us. I bought the book the two of them had written along with Ralph Metzner based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead that's called The Psychedelic Experience. It was a how-to manual, and it worked very well. I used it in many sessions, whether I tripped or guided. It provided a framework for the cascade of images and sensations LSD brought on, which could otherwise be quite overwhelming. It contained verbal maps and navigational aids. There was a cohort of hippies to which we belonged for whom spiritual seeking was a serious goal. Some of us had left oppressive or unsatisfying traditional religions behind. This seeking was not akin to the sex, drugs, and rock and roll ethos of many. The old saw, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there, did not apply. (laughs) We thought of ourselves, perhaps a bit hyperbolically, as pathfinders. Many modalities were employed in this seeking, including, of course, psychedelic herbs and chemicals, LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, ayahuasca, and others. But, as happened with Leary, other techniques often came to supplant the chemical aids. The legacy of this is the commonplace presence in our culture of yoga, Zen Buddhism, Tai Chi, and other Asian martial arts, Sufism, Kabbalah studies, etc. But I want to stress that the chemicals provided the initial push to open the somewhat sticky doors of perception. I should note that some of these pharmaceutical aids were tied to specific spiritual traditions of their own and were regarded as sacred. These were best used in the respectful manner taught by their respective masters. This is especially true for peyote, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. I think we mentioned that in that episode as well, right? We were talking about um, how I think in order to legally do ayahuasca, you have to do it with a member of a certain tribe present. That's my understanding, at least. I've heard that before. The experience of ecstatic vision is extremely difficult to describe in words or even in visual art or music. Some of the efforts to do so have given us parts of various holy books. Pretty much every religion on the planet has a mystical wing and teams of prophets who attempt the articulation of their mystical experience, and many have developed technologies to achieve the experience. Meditation systems, ecstatic dance or postures, sacred psychedelic plants, and so on. Naturally, these technologies are tuned to whatever the particular religion or philosophy or sect imagines God to be. If you're a mystical Christian, you are likely to see Jesus when in an elevated state. As a Jew, I once had a long visionary dream in which I was a Maccabean warrior. It may sound pompous to say this, but if one has not had such experience, it's pretty hard to understand descriptions of it. Of course, getting glimpses of the gears of the universe does not automatically make one a sage. The visions come with the obligation to fulfill them in good work, as the Buddhists say. Finally, 
We can agree that Leary was not really a scientist. He dabbled in science, learned some of its lingo, but science was not his native language. What he was instead was a ringmaster in the magic theater for madmen only. He was a showman, and yes, a charlatan, like any good carny, but he had a powerful gift of gab. I can't tell you how often I saw his book, The Psychedelic Experience, rescue struggling folks from impending bad trips. In Leary's model, a full-on acid trip always began with a symbolic death experience, metaphoric or realistic, and this required courage and preparation. You mentioned Leary's tongue-in-cheek motto, turn on, tune in, and drop out. As I'm sure you know, drop out referred to out of the machine, out of the exploitive culture. Well, we had a sign in the back of our VW bus named the collective unconscious, (laughs) which said, turn on, tune in, and drop by. Thanks for listening to this reverie. Well, that's awesome. I, 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 I it's wonderful to have feedback a from someone who, uh, who, uh, who, who was active yeah. at the time. Uh, B who knew Leary, and uh, and then and then C had had these experiences and can speak to them uh, in this bit of listener mail. Yeah, and I love that Rick was able to provide, and and he wasn't the only one. We received a couple more emails mm-hmm. that were similar to this, but this was this was amazing. Like I just felt like Rick just encapsulated everything we were trying to hit with those two episodes. Yeah, uh, there was this general attitude I think that you and I had at the end of it where we were like, oh, that's kind of disappointing, man. Leary just really wasn't the figure that we hoped he would be. Well, I think one of the advantages that Rick had here is, I mean, he knew, he he was he was there firsthand to see Leary's flaws and, uh, you know, the human qualities that were, that, that sometimes put him apart from this iconic uh, vision of him. Yeah. Where, whereas we were coming at it Mostly with the the icon in the forefront, and then reading about the real man and the real struggles behind it. Yeah. So it was very textual. Yeah. We didn't we didn't have the experience of the human character of his ethos. Yeah, and uh, and clearly Rick has had more time to reflect on who Leary was and what what he contributed. Also, Rick sounds totally amazing. A guy who worked in the <laughs> yeah. ER for 25 years and has all of these cool experiences behind that. I want him to start a podcast. Yeah, I'd listen. All right, let's uh, let's move on to another bit. Uh, Joe, what does Carney have for you? Well, I thought before we got into monsters in the bicameral mind, I would do a roundup of lots of different emails we got on our episode about the game of werewolf. Robert, oh, I'm, yes. I'm sure you're excited to hear some of this stuff. So we got lots of great emails. I decided to try to summarize them into a small space. So our listener, Carissa, uh, writes about playing in an online werewolf group, uh, which sounds pretty awesome. But they've got a lot of amazing extra roles in the game. Now, we talked about the standard roles in the game of werewolf. You've got the townsfolk. You've got the werewolves who kill in the night. Mm-hmm. You create the mob. You try to find a werewolf and you execute them and see how you did. There's also the seer, which we used in our game, who gets to ask every night if there's a werewolf. In Carissa's game, there is the Frankenstein monster <laughs> who absorbs the abilities of every townsperson who dies. There is also the teen wolf. Who is, a, who, who is apparently so excited about being a werewolf that this person has to use the word wolf at least once every day cycle or that character dies. Oh, wow. That's, that's ingenious. So you gotta find a way to slip it in there without mm-hmm. people always noticing. 
wow, that's that's brutal yeah. in terms of game mechanics. Yeah. There is also the cult leader who adds one person to the cult every night. And if the only townspeople left alive are all in the cult, the cult leader wins. Ooh, nice. That's a nice game within a game there. So multiple people, including Daniel, contacted us about a very similar online game called Town of Salem, which sounds pretty cool. Uh, our listener Leon on Town of Salem says, quote, what's really different uh, than your live game of werewolf is the lack of emotion and in human interaction. The ability to watch someone's face twitch as they're accused of being evil or hear the strain in the voice as they defend themselves is lost, which really changes the dynamic of the game. It makes learning the minutia of each role that much more important. And I think that's kind of interesting. I know some of the studies we looked at said that they found similar dynamics about what liars tended to do verbally, whether the game was being played online or in real life uh, and verbally, uh, you know, spoken out loud. But I, yeah, I, I do have to think it would change some things. I mean, in our games we played in here in the office, I could, I could sniff you out, man, because I was just looking at your face. And you were trying to say, no, it's not me. I'm not a werewolf. But you just – you couldn't help but grin. And with the grin, I knew it. I knew you were the killer. Who in the office was like the best at disguising being a werewolf? Oh, That's a man. good question. It, it all happened so fast. Really. I would imagine – was Bolin there? No. Ben Bolin would be good at it. He would. Ben yeah. Bolin of car stuff, of ridiculous history, of stuff they don't want you to know. Yeah. Well, our producer Alex was there. Yeah, uh, I felt like he did a pretty good job. Who was Even, a great narrator too. He was a great narrator. Uh, however, as one of the bearded gentlemen playing the game, instant suspicion. Yeah, that he was a werewolf. <laughs> uh, and uh, Alex commented that that our colleague Tari, he thinks, was the best. Yeah, she was pretty good. She was pretty good. Now, those of you who don't know her, that probably means nothing. But, but let it be known, she is a werewolf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey. Have you guys – I got another tie into one of the How Stuff Works shows here. Have you guys heard that Strickland over on Tech Stuff has been uh, covering this Mondo game – board game that just came out about th- – it's related to The Thing? Yeah, I saw something about that. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's apparently very similar to the mechanics of Werewolf. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, we'll yeah, have to well, check that out. Well, there are a number of games that that certainly incorporate uh, a similar mechanic. Uh, I think one of our our listeners actually wrote in about the Battlestar Galactica board game that came out several years ago. Uh, right? Are so, you a toaster? Yeah. Yeah. Are Are you a Cylon? And yeah. th- I actually encountered that game before I ever played Werewolf, and had tremendous fun accusing, just often blindly accusing friends of being a Cylon to the point that it's still kind of an inside joke with certain friends, yeah. uh, whether whether they are Cylons. It seems pretty easy. It's whoever's wearing the slinky red dress, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's well, – that, sometimes, sometimes that'll, that'll cue you in, but not always. The best cue for, for seeing guilt in somebody else is just seeing a, a, a slight grin, not a big smile, yeah. but the person who looks a little bit satisfied with themselves, you know they've done wrong. I believe it's what Lady Gaga calls poker face. <laughs> well, I, I think we, one of the things we talked about too is that there's often a different energy in the person when they have to go from being on the offense to being on the defense. Yes. You know, and and you can see that energy change. And, and sometimes you can feel it. I could definitely feel uh my 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 energy shift when I was secretly had a different role in the game. When you had to pretend not to be the werewolf. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, a couple more. Our, our listener Heather mentions that she used to play the French language version of the game, which of course is called Lou Garou. And uh that's 
French for werewolf, yeah. and included the chasseur, the hunter. And that makes me wonder if the language affects the dynamics of the game. Is it easier to lie or to spot liars in French versus English versus Russian or any other language? I, I can speak if... to this, actually. Oh, yeah? Because I, I used to play Mafia, not werewolf, with a lot of Eastern European friends. Yeah. And we also played this game that they taught me called Mahachek, which is very similar in the sense that, like, it's a game about lying and trying to tell if somebody else is lying or not. And they definitely were able to read me way easier than I was able to read them. Which language were you playing in? English. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. So, like, you were at a disadvantage being a native speaker? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of fun. Because maybe playing the game in in a, a secondary language... There's kind of this this firewall built up there, like a linguistic firewall. Yeah. Well, know. they all spoke English fluently, though, and I didn't speak speak a lick of. They they spoke variations of Polish, Czech, uh, Slovakian, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I just whenever they would communicate with one another in those languages, maybe that should have been outside of the the realm of uh, of uh, the the rules in those right. games. Well, this is probably a deeper linguistic question, but do you think they were thinking about? the game in English? Oh, that's interesting. I think they were thinking about Mafia in English, for sure, okay. because the concepts were very English to them, but not when we played Mahachek. Though the game was invented in Russia. Oh, is that right? I didn't yeah. know that. Oh, fascinating. As Mafia. Like, we, we celebrate the, the werewolf fluff, but yeah. really, if you want to get technical, uh, Mafia um, it was the first. Oh, okay. One last quick note from a listener about werewolf. Our listener, Valerie, said, uh, well, she shared a lot of weird and interesting stuff about growing up in what she describes as a dysfunctional family. She says, quote, what I generally tell people is that I was raised by wolves, except that's really unfair to the wolves. So I am now in search of some wolves who might adopt me. And it sounds like given her life experience and her dim views on the nature of humankind, she is excited to play. She wants to get into the lie space. Uh, so she says, quote, at the advanced stage of 58, I believe you may have finally introduced me to the perfect tool for explaining human social interaction. It's quite good. It really does, like, make you think about your friends differently after you play it. All right. That's it for Werewolf. All right. Well, uh, here's one uh, Carney is handing me. This one comes to us from Melanie. And she's responding uh, to one of our monster episodes. She says, hey. I'm currently listening to your podcast on cute versus monstrous imagery, and I hadn't really thought about it before, but there are so many similarities there. Both types of stimuli are meant to grab your attention, and I think a lot of factors can push people to feel one way or the other. Lots of people find mice adorable, including myself, but others are scared of them. I'm terrified of spiders, but I have a friend who thinks they're cute. I personally even find snakes cute, even though no one seems to agree with me. I actually think almost every type of animal is cute, and yet actual human babies just seem mostly annoying and gross to me, so I don't really see the appeal. I'm right there with you, Melanie. (laughs) Something's probably wrong in my brain on that note, LOL. Uh, The fact that a lot of creatures seem to be able to go either way like the eye-eye. The eye-eye, for anyone not familiar, is, a, is this wonderful um, species of lemur yeah. that has these big, 
huge, huge eyes. eyes, and it has this elongated finger that it uses to like pull grubs out of yeah. or insects. Can't out they of like tree. peel grapes and stuff too? I remember hearing that. Maybe so. Yeah, yeah. but I, I mean, it does seem to be a, a horrible hybrid of babyish features. Like the big eyes are part of the baby schema, but having long tapering, you know, long limbs is not. Having short stubby right. limbs is part of the baby schema. So it almost seems like can you imagine a baby with long slender limbs? That's not cute. Yeah, the slender the, man baby. <laughs> yeah, and it also comes out at night. It's an nocturnal creature. But it, it's one of these where when I look at it, especially a baby, obviously, but uh, an adult eye, eye still looks kind of adorable to me, but it is a species that has traditionally faced um, uh, some hardships because of superstitions regarding it. And so there'll be like superstitious violence against the eye. eye. Huh. Anyway, she continues. Um, yeah, a lot of these creatures, quote, uh, made me think of uh, your previous episode where you mentioned the woman who doesn't feel fear and how, in the absence of it, she's actually attracted to supposedly fearful stimuli. That's the patient SM who's got the lesion on her amygdala. Right. Uh, she says, there seem to be these two mechanisms working in tandem, and different people may have different levels for those mechanisms. Anyway, not sure if I'm really bringing up any ni- any new ideas here, but I thought I'd write in since I found the topic interesting. I love all of your bons- monster episodes, by the way. I'm sad that October is over because I would definitely listen to monster podcasts year-round. All your other stuff is great, too, of course, but I have a bias uh, for the monsters. Thanks for all the great stuff you put out. I listen to you guys all the time while I work. Well, here's one of the things that I'm hoping to see in 2018 is that Dr. Anton Jessup gets his own <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll have to we'll have to contact the university about that. See what see if he can get funding for that study. But yeah, I think uh, Melanie had some wonderful thoughts here about that that cute to monstrous spectrum that seems to exist. Well, I like how she draws the connection to that uh, the case of SM that we discussed from the other monster episode. That's yeah. from the first monster, uh, where we, apparently in these cases where there is a person who has a lesion on their brain that makes them unable or unable to feel fear, mm-hmm. when they see fearful stimuli, instead of just being unaffected by it, they're very attracted to it, like they want to touch it. Yeah, it just gets their attention yeah yeah so it's it's more that instead of it being like a monster cute spectrum it is like attention grabbing stimuli spectrum wait a minute guys i think you just came up with an explanation for the scene in prometheus where that scientist (laughs) approaches the weird albino snake xenomorph Uh and he's like hey little buddy and he wants to reach out and touch it yeah everybody in the theater is going what are you doing why would you do that yeah well you know he was the, I believe he was a biologist, right? Yeah. So it's, it's very likely that he and Melanie would have had the same idea that, like, any creature is cute and attention-grabbing. And, of course, you want to get right up there and, you know, let him crawl inside your helmet. Yeah, and down your throat, <laughs> if I remember that movie correctly. Anecdotally, Melanie's comments about finding things that are usually perceived as scary cute and finding things that are usually cute kind of repellent, uh, that does seem to be one anecdotal case against the idea that our categories for what's cute and what's scary are biologically inherited. That does seem to be uh, one more tick in the column of, well, yeah, maybe th- these are somehow conditioned in early childhood rather than received through our, through our inborn instincts. Hmm. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a commercial break. And when we come back, we will have another trio of either listener males or partially digest uh, uh, um, conglomerates of uh, listener males, depending on what Carney gives us. All right. We're back. 
Hey, so springboarding off of that last listener mail about fear and lack of fear and the fear response, I've got a great one here from Jev that's about our episode on the science of it, meaning Pennywise and the movie it. Oh, yes. And, uh, and she specifically references the fear response system that you brought up in the episode. This, again, just really touched me. She says... The three phases you mentioned, la-di-da, freeze, and take charge, was something I experienced and witnessed during 9-11. Now, let's refresh our audience's memory, right? So the la-di-da uh, people who – the way that they respond to fear stimuli, that's supposedly 75% of the population just kind of like don't know what to do with themselves. Yeah, this is the uh, – oh, goodness. I wish I had, uh, had my uh, my names here in front of me, but – uh, referring back to the movie Aliens. Yeah, uh, you use that as the metaphor. Yeah, what's the name of the guy who just freezes and is... Gorman. Gorman, Gorman. yeah. Gorman, Gorman just yep. said he doesn't know how to respond and doesn't respond. Yeah. And if it weren't for other people getting involved, he would just be eaten by xenomorphs well, immediately. That's the freeze. Yes. And the la-di-da is like some of the other soldiers. Mm-hmm. And then the take charge is Ripley. But so la-di-da is 75% of the population. Freeze is 15% of the population. And take charge is 15% of the population. Mm-hmm. But we all like to think we're the take charge, right? But well, clearly that, yeah. the numbers are against yeah. us. That's what planet, our heroes do. This is not Planet Ripley. Yeah. So as Jeb says from her experience with 9-11, my husband and I lived south of the World Trade Towers in Battery Park City during 9-11. We had a view of the Hudson River where the planes flew over toward the towers. After I alerted my sleeping husband in a nonchalant manner that a plane hit the towers, he jumped out of bed fast and looked out the window and announced, we are under attack. This was long before anyone realized that. He dressed and grabbed my hand and started to run. I complacently went along. When our neighbor friend came out to the hall, she asked, what's going on? My husband said, we're under attack. Come. And she froze and said, no. We left her behind, and I found out later that she curled up into a ball and cried and prayed. My husband knew exactly what to do, and I accepted his directions without obstruction to his commands. I always thought I was conditioned to listen to him without question, which kind of depressed me. But after hearing your explanation of how we react in an emergency, my experience came flooding back and everything that happened. I see now that my husband was in the 15% that take charge. I was the 70% to follow, and my friend, who did get out safely and was not injured, was the 15% to freeze. We're all fine, and nine months later, I had a baby girl. Thanks for your podcast. I love listening to you and the entire Stuff family. Keep up the good work. So I responded to her with this because uh, I was really touched that she shared this experience with us, and it really uh, put that study into perspective for me because – I had heard those numbers before, but I hadn't thought about them as being applicable to real-world relationship scenarios, right? And it explains a lot of everyday behavior that I often find confusing, right? Like, as I said, like, I'd like to think I'm in the 15% that would take charge, but who knows? Maybe I'd be the one who freezes instead. This is probably, I think, why people describe when they survive life death situations as it being something that teaches them something about themselves that they didn't know previously, right? Because this is the only way you can discover which of these three categories you fall into. That's awesome. I love getting messages like this. Yeah, I mean, I mean but, it, but it's true. You can you can put yourself in simulated uh, environments and simulated experiences, but I mean, you, you ultimately don't really know how you're going to react to an event like this unless you're presented with it. Yeah, like a fun exercise is like, think about 
our office and like all the people we work with mm-hmm. and then imagine like a swarm of xenomorphs take uh, takes over the other end of the building and is coming towards us how do you think our various coworkers would react would they fall into those categories who would freeze who would who would uh, uh uh you know take charge and who would just be like ah i don't know what to do well everyone's survival would come down to uh <laughs> to, to whether our office manager has has had the office flamethrower properly serviced that is absolutely yeah. true our office manager Tamika would absolutely be in the 50% of take charge. <laughs> yeah. All right, so some yep. of us would survive. Okay. <laughs> well, no, actually, I, I can see what would happen, which is that we would call a three-hour meeting to discuss what to do. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we'd, well, actually, we'd spend several hours trying to schedule the three-hour meeting at a time when everyone could be there, and then we wouldn't really succeed. And so 15% would make it to the meeting, and yeah. then they'd discuss what to do. And then yeah. they'd get eaten by xenomorphs. Oh, <laughs> man. This is, this is the next uh, Alien film. Ridley Scott's wondering how to... This is make the, it fresh. This is the Shin Godzilla of the Alien <laughs> franchise. It is, yes. Alien bureaucracy. I like it. All right, uh, well, Joe, what does is, what is Carney have for you next? Is it a, a single uh, email or is it another uh, partially digested mess? Well, I'm wondering how to do the bicameral stuff because we've got a whole bunch on that. And I've got one other email about cuteness and monsters. Maybe we'll do cuteness and monsters and then uh, we can split up the bicameral stuff over a couple more uh, rounds. What do you think about that? Sounds good. Okay. So our listener Ming gets in touch with us to talk about the cuteness and monstrosity spectrum. So she says, hey, guys, my name is Ming from Toronto. I love your show and have been obsessively listening to it every week since I discovered it. You guys do such a wonderful job in researching and making your podcast that I've been recommending it to anyone who's got an interest in things out of the ordinary. We really appreciate that. Thank yeah, you, Yeah, spread the word. That's the best thing you can do to support the show. Very nice of you to say. So, word of mouth really is, I think, the best way mm-hmm. to let people know about the show. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, so tell your friends, people out there. Anyway, Ming says, just wanted to write in and mention something I thought of while listening to your podcast regarding monstrosity and cuteness, especially in the context of Japanese folklore. One of the things that wasn't meant, and so the context here is that in the episode we discuss various folk monsters from, from Japanese, uh, traditions, like the Oni and the Kappa and the Tengu. And with the Oni and Kappa specifically, some academic studies charting the path by which they've gone from being disgusting and terrifying to being turned kind of cute in popular imagery. By the way, I don't think I mentioned on the episode that it, on everyone's iPhones, we have emoticons of the Tengu and the Oni. I'm not sure about the Kappa offhand, but I was I was in there the other day and I noticed the Tingu. Yeah. yeah. Tingu's like the crow one, right? It's the like the bird human hybrid yeah. that's often presented as this long nosed, yeah. red faced human, yeah. But the Tingu we were saying hasn't been quite as cutified as the other two, or at yeah. least there wasn't uh, academic work on it. Right, because it was more it seems to be a monster that is more spiritualized and more regal mm-hmm. and, and more the property of the uh, the, the, the either the ruling or the upper intellectual class. Okay. So part of what we talked about in that episode was trying to explain what's going on here. Psychologically, what's causing people to turn terrifying and disgusting monsters into cute versions of themselves rendered harmless and cuddly. Anyway, uh, Ming continues... One of the things that wasn't mentioned that immediately came to mind for me was the socioeconomic climate in post-war Japan. The aggressive cutification feels like at least in part rooted in a rehabilitation of the country's image. Aside from boosting the economy through cute consumerism, it may also be a reaction to the sudden lack of militarism and nationalism that was ubiquitous in Japan during World War II. 
I, I think that's a really interesting yeah. thought. Like if you're a country where your neighbors, you know, the Americans, the Chinese and all these have come to see you as the embodiment of imperialist violence, mm-hmm. I can see how that might lead in the culture uh, to a widespread embracing of cuteness imagery. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think she's gone to something here. This is a very smart observation. That makes the the status of the Tingu all the more interesting, doesn't it? Because the Tingu is a, a warrior being. It is a it is a it is a creature that that you know warriors would seek out in the wild so that they could learn its martial arts. Uh, the the idea that this this remains largely untouched is it's kind of like the the untouched heart perhaps of uh, of the Japanese warrior ethos. Maybe yeah. along the lines of what Ming's saying, there was like a. Uh, rejection of warrior ethos after the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but maybe, yeah. you know, it's like a lot of things with either cultural or personal identity, you know, you can, some things you can only push off so far. You know? right, I mean, there's yeah. a certain war, there is a warrior ethos in in every human culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, you know, to what extent is it uh, is it celebrated? To what extent is it confronted? Okay, for this next part, you should find this in your notes and look at this painting I pasted in. So Ming continues, along the same lines, if y'all are particularly interested in the arts, one Japanese artist that likes to play with monstrosity versus cuteness is Takashi Murakami. His giant paintings definitely ride the line of cuteness slash monstrosity, often featuring the baby schema, but with sharp teeth <laughs> and bright, cute colors that are occasionally pushed to the venomous extreme via neons. I am only slightly familiar with Murakami's work, but yeah, this is cool. A uh, friend of the show, E.C. Steiner, is big on Murakami. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to get into him now. Uh, so she continues... I believe one of the key points in his art has to do with the above idea of post-war transformation of Japan. And he also touches on consumerism by categorizing himself in the pop art genre, one primary idea of which is making art avant-garde by making it low class and making art for the cold hard cash instead of purely for art's sake. If this episode had an art mascot, it'd be him for sure. Thanks for taking the time to read this. Keep doing what you do. Cheers, Ming. So, Ming, I really appreciated this email. I thought it was fantastic and this painting is awesome did you guys happen to see there was a murakami uh traveling exhibit at the high museum here in atlanta a couple years ago (sighs) i wish i'd known about that no it was super cool huh but uh, i might have missed that one so this painting she sent i've got to try to explain it it's um it's like a mickey mouse head but through the lens of a psychedelic warfare terror drug (laughs) so it's got a wide it's got all the baby schema it's got the wide face that's baby schema large Mm -hmm. eyes that's baby schema it's got low set features and a large forehead large ears it's all the stuff we think of for babies and puppies but it just it looks awful its eyes look very very uh, intense, which I think is interesting. Like it seems to be peering into you with its with crazy intensity. One of the hallmarks, of course, of a baby or a, a puppy or a kitten is that it's like it doesn't really, it can't really see anything all that well. You know, it's just kind of taking it all in. Or in the, the case of very young children, you know, only making out blurs and shapes. Uh, this reminds me of another artist that comes up on the show a lot, uh, another Japanese artist, Junji Ito. We've talked about him before, uh-huh. mm-hmm. uh, his work on Gyo and uh, Uzumaki. And it's it's similar in that, like, he has that manga style that's kind of cute, but then he, like, evolves it into something that's totally horrific. But I'm wondering if there is going to be a point where, like, uh, for instance, Cthulhu, uh, that Junji Ito's monstrous creations will, like, get turned into plush uh, stuffed toys or something like that. <laughs> 
So it's like a it's like a double reversal, right? It goes yeah. cute to monstrous and then back to cute. Yeah, the um one of his like uh, really big comic storylines is Tomi, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh, and it's all about this girl who's like this, you know, cute ingenue uh high school Japanese schoolgirl and but she's got this like weird power where uh she makes everyone around her want to kill her. And every part of her body that is cut off grows into another Tomy. Hmm. Uh, so hmm. there's just like, he's got like, like 25 or 30 stories about this one character and all the iterations, right? Uh, but yeah, it's kind of cute to horrific. The Kawaidra. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. I highly recommend it. All right. Well, it looks like, uh, Carney is handing me a couple of emails. They look kind of short, so I'm going to read them together. Uh, this first one comes to us from Brett. He writes in and says, Hey team, was just listening to the Cambrian Monster Mash episode, and at the moment you couldn't think of an apt comparison between arms race and evolution. Surely the British utilizing radar would be an apt comparison, as it literally added a layer of sight to the military. Maybe I'm oversimplifying. I've stopped a mid-bike ride to type out this email. Anyway, cheers, oh. Brett. Oh, Brett, I hope you're on a sidewalk. Yeah. Yeah, stay safe, Brett. Uh, I, I think what Brett's saying, and because we did talk about arms races and evolution, but I think what he's talking about is the evolution of sight that yes. we talked about in that episode because we couldn't quite find a technological arms race analogy for the first, uh, the first introduction of acute vision in the history of animals on Earth. Yeah, because the idea here is that as animals develop the ability to see, suddenly things that were not an issue become an issue, such as pigmentation. Yeah. And so that was one proposed explanation for what might have caused the Cambrian explosion, if the Cambrian explosion is to be interpreted as this massive explosion of, of animal body plan diversity. What what made all this evolution suddenly come about? One hypothesis is that, well, maybe this is the first time we got eyes that could see very well. Before that, we might have just had like, you know, light sensitive spots or something. And once you've got uh, focusing eyes, these compound eyes that can really make out movement and stuff like that, you completely change the playing field of what your competition for survival is. This follows along the line of stuff that we have covered in other episodes, but also on how stuff works about recent discoveries into like really basic life forms like slimes and how their cells can sense light. They have photo, I guess, uh, sensitive mm-hmm. cells. They can see with their cells. So maybe that's what we're talking about. Uh, we're evolving into pre eyes. Yeah, yeah. Or from, sorry. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and so the introduction of eyes he compares, of course, to radar. I think that's a pretty good comparison. What I do think, you think so, Robert? yeah. Yeah, radar. And I mean, to a certain extent, you could throw sonar in there too mm-hmm. and just say that, yeah, here's a way of sensing other things that change the way everything has to behave, at least in a war scenario for the the radar. Yeah. All right. Here's this other uh, bit, though, that Carney has handed me. This one comes to us from Jonathan. Great episode, guys. I didn't expect you could make an episode on monsters so intellectually stimulating. That's what we do, man. <laughs> Is this about the first monster? This is about episode? the first monster. Okay. Inspired by Joe's speculation on our first ancestor's ability to imagine a monster, I'd like to suggest that it might not have been a single uh, epiphanous moment, but that it evolved gradually as our ancestors were able to remember and reflect on their dreams. Hmm. They certainly had dreams. 
and certainly they experienced all kinds of irrationality in them. A creature with the body of a man and the head of a great cat wouldn't be a surprising dream image. And if there's any substance at all to the bicameral mind theory, the source of images like this might have seemed profound. Thanks again for the podcast, Jonathan. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. Hey, did you guys in that episode, did you uh, talk about the example from Buffy, the first evil? No, I don't think we did. I don't know if I made it that far. You know what I'm talking about? It's pretty close to the end. Yeah. She's like the the final big bad. We made it to what the end of the fourth season. Is Uh, that there? So they so the first evil shows up in a Christmas episode, and then uh, at the very last season, it's the big bad. Yeah, Robert's right. And essentially, the idea is that it's the very first monster that humanity ever encountered, and that we're all aware of it from our collective unconscious. Oh, I forgot about the, the the loftier. Aspects yeah, of that yeah. season. Well, okay. man, that would have been perfect for this episode. I yeah. wish I'd known about that. I should have, in prep for the episode, should have gone and watched the entire series of Buffy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. Maybe just that last season. Okay. But uh, certainly, I love Jonathan's point here because this kind of gets to this gets to an area that we've discussed before when when trying to figure out what ancient peoples were thinking of. Like, it's easy to to fall into a, the, the trap of just focusing on one area of human experience and human thought and to dismiss, say, dreams or, uh, as we've specifically discussed, uh, creativity. Yeah. And saying, well, no, if they encountered – if they thought up a dragon, they must have encountered bones of something like a dragon. Yeah. This is – so uh, not to impugn the work of people like Adrian Mayer, who I think is doing mm-hmm. very fascinating stuff. But, you know, we've talked about her saying that – Ancient monsters may have been inspired by people seeing fossils in the ancient world. So you see a dinosaur fossil and that's where dragon legends come from. It's not that I think that that's impossible. I think that's a really interesting hypothesis to explore. But I'm always a little hesitant to undersell the role of creative imagination in the origins of ideas and stories. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that probably just come from people dreaming up weird stuff. Yeah, literally or 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 figuratively. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and I guess with a lot of this, too, you can just sort of imagine that you can have multiple mechanisms at work at the same time. Yeah. The pe- people are dreaming. People are encountering these stimuli in their uh, in their lives. And uh, and there's also a certain amount of creativity going on as well. Yeah. I just don't think we have to assume that somebody needed to see something like something in order to make that thing up. You don't right. think that H.P. Lovecraft uncovered like the skeleton of a half octopus, half man giant? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, a lot of the things he dreamt up would would have found a, a fitting home in, uh, in, in the, the, the Cambrian era seas. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. But I mean, you can totally see somebody writing that article, right? Because we like to make connections about inspiration. So you could say, oh, well, it turns out, you know, what we see from his diaries that H.P. Lovecraft visited a museum exhibit in this year right. in which he saw these earlier preserved remains of a Cambrian era organism that had these strange tentacles. And that must be what it, I mean, you can imagine yep. somebody writing something like that. No, I'm almost I'm almost positive that what you're positing mm-hmm. is true because I remember reading uh that HP Lovecraft biography uh, what is it called? I've mentioned it on the show before. I think it's like against the world, against life. I let you borrow it one time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sounds about yeah. right. Yeah, it was something like not not I am Providence for the other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, profound yeah. misanthrope. Yeah, but it mentions exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, but but I I'm just saying you can people love to come up with theories of explanation like that, and a lot of times they might have something to them, but a lot of times people are just being creative. Right. Yeah. All right, we're going to take one more break, and we come back. 
a final round of listener mail here before we close out the episode. All right, we have returned. Okay, guys, this is the last one that I have from our October series of Halloween episodes. This is from Lily, and she writes to us about our six ghost stories episode. And you may remember uh, that one of those ghost stories came from Malawi. She says, hi, guys, greetings from Southern Africa, Zambia in particular. Hmm. I love your podcast, and I particularly love the episode on ghosts in different cultures. I was very excited that you covered a story from Malawi, a country that doesn't get enough global attention and one that I used to live in. While living in Malawi, I also noticed that Christian religions were frequently intermingled with traditional beliefs in spirits, prophets, possession, and faith healing. Like you supposed, these two belief systems are not seen as incongruous to most Malawians. British colonialists tried to quash this coexistence by rooting out Malawi's many religious secret societies, but were relatively unsuccessful. Although the societies are much fewer now, many of their beliefs and traditions remain. I did have a minor correction regarding your pronunciation of... uh, I pronounced it Mutharika in that episode. In Chichewa, which is the main language of Malawi, pronounced chi Chewa, and many of the other Bantu languages in the southern African region. H's are often used to denote emphasis and are silent in most cases. Hmm. Mutharika is not pronounced Mutharika, as y'all were pronouncing it, but is actually pronounced Mutharika. Also, it's important to note that former President Bingu Mutarika's brother, Dr. Professor Peter, Peter Mutarika, is now president of Malawi. So most people now refer to the former as simply President Bingu and the current president as President Mutarika. As far as I've been able to tell, Bingu is one of the most widely revered presidents in Malawian history due to his efforts to make Malawi independent from Western aid. Many Malawians refer to him by his first name with both love and respect so that i think we might have mentioned uh in the episode that the they were related and that the 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 brother that we were talking about is the one from earlier who passed away and he was one of the many presidents who supposedly was afraid of ghosts in the presidential mansion yes uh she adds one more thing this is interesting uh, she says, one more thing. Attacks on people with albinism in Malawi are relatively new and infrequent compared to other countries in the region. Example is Tanzania. And many Malawians will tell you that it's not a Malawian superstition, but one carried down from Tanzania and East Africa. Hmm. So that's interesting because uh, we brought that up as well in that uh, episode as being like one of those sort of supernatural beliefs that seems to be working its way into the westernization of these African states. Yeah, I mean, it's always important to remember that superstitions, urban legends, uh, and, and the various related uh, uh, energies, I guess you could say, uh, these continue to move, they continue to migrate, and they can and, and to to evolve uh, with our cultures yeah yeah so that was the enlightening because honestly like that was one of those stories when we were looking for in that episode if you haven't heard it we tried to cover a ghost story from almost every continent mm-hmm. and uh, it was really hard to find a, a good african ghost story that was translated at least but this one mm-hmm. was widely covered in western media well and then also more to the point too difficult to find uh authentically african ghost stories mm-hmm. uh that were not stories told by a colonial uh, 
power. Yeah, there's yeah. tons of South African ghost stories, but they're all based on like Eurocentric ideas that were brought there. Yeah. That being said, if you know a great African ghost story from anywhere in Africa, share it with us. We would love to have it in our heads as well. Definitely. All right, Joe uh, Carney, the mailbot is presenting a, a large uh, lump of of emails to you here. What's going on? Okay, well, it's, so I'm going to address the bicameral mind emails, and since there are so many of these, I picked a few. We might not be able to get to all of them, but we might, if it's okay with you guys, split this up over a couple of rounds. Uh, let you read a little more if if you ca- if you can. If yeah, okay. I have a couple okay. more here. I believe that have been flagged by Carney. Okay, so we got tons of great correspondence about Julian Jaynes and the origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. If you are not familiar and you want to get the full story, you should go back and listen to our episodes from late September. Uh, but we will do a very brief refresher. Here is the super stripped down version of the hypothesis. Until about 3,000 years ago, human beings were not conscious. The evolution of human consciousness, Julian Jane says, happened in three stages. First, human ancestors were stimulus response machines with no inner mind space. Then, sometime around the birth of language in humans, humans developed a, quote, bicameral mind, which means any situation where you couldn't deal with the new stimuli through instinct and conditioned responses, you would learn what to do by hearing a voice, an auditory hallucination that would tell you what to do. And what was actually them all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, no, I mean, not usually at the time. No. So that was a joke. What was actually happening here was that the non-dominant hemisphere of the brain was coming up with a response and then delivering it to the dominant hemisphere of the brain as a spoken command that people perceived as an auditory hallucination. And they called these hallucinated voices gods. And then finally, about 3,000 years ago, a cultural revolution caused humans to become conscious in the way that we are today. They lost the divided brain. They lost the hallucinated voices and instead experienced this internal theater or mind space based on metaphors where mental imagery is viewed and hypothetical scenarios are worked out in the imagination. Like memory palaces? No, it's like it's basically like your internal mind space, whatever you're picturing, whatever you're consciously thinking out, whatever hypothetical scenario you're working out in your mind. That is the mind space for Julian Jaynes. So Jane says vestiges of bicameralism still exist today. And you, you can see them most acutely in conditions like schizophrenia. Yeah. Is that a pretty, it's hard to try to get it all into a very tight space, but that's the, the, the short run. Yeah. And it's also, it's, it's also kind of a story for why the gods stop speaking. Yeah. First stop appearing and then stop speaking, uh, to humanity. Right. Uh, not a, not a complete, like suddenly they stopped returning our calls, but they, they started calling us less and less. Yeah. But we're still living in a world and living with the, with this legacy, the, these religions, these tales, these, these mythologies of gods appearing and speaking to humans and telling them what they should do. Well, they started calling us less and less and we're still sitting by the phone. Yes. So, uh, bicameral mind, not an accepted theory. I'm, I'm hearing the Soul Asylum song. Uh-huh. I'm waiting by the phone, <laughs> waiting for you to but call. But whenever we pick it up these days, it's a prank caller. Yeah. That's the problem. Uh, so it's Dave Perner. Not an accepted theory, but in my view, a really interesting hypothesis. Very clever, very well argued. Hasn't quite met the burden of proof, but it's it's worth attention. You know, somebody on Twitter reached out to us and was they were kind of like, "Hey, what's the deal? Why why are, why are you ashamed to stand by bicameralism?" Well, I'm not ashamed. I'm just saying what I think. 
Yeah, well, I mean, my my response to them was like, I'm, I am, I'll admit to anybody that I think this is a, a fabulous uh, theory and just instant, just endlessly fascinating. Um, I, I, I love to bring out this model when contemplating various things in our present world or in the ancient world. But at the same time, uh, I don't want it to be the only model that I pull off the shelf to analyze mm-hmm. things. So yeah. if I am, if I have a, if I'm hesitant about anything, it, I am, I'm hesitant about taking it on as my sole worldview lens. I think what I detected in this uh, in this tweet was that somebody was basically working on the assumption that it sounds like you are convinced by the theory, but you're hedging or something mm-hmm. uh, to, to say, like, no, I shouldn't publicly commit to this. I mean, that's not my position. My position is I find it fascinating, but I'm not convinced by the theory. Right. So it, it's not like I'm like pretending to find it less convincing than I do. I, mm-hmm. I think I'm not fully there for some reasons that we'll get to in some of the emails I'm about yeah. to read. Um, but a couple of people wrote in wondering if they have a bicameral mind. <laughs> I think if you're asking that question, I think you probably don't have one in the sense that Julian Jaynes envisioned, though uh, it's possible you have one in some other related way. Uh, some people pointed out interesting parallels between bicameralism and occultism and like Crowleyite theology and Thelema. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you think about that. I think you guys probably know more about that than I do. A little, yeah. Well, we talk about Crowley and Thelema in our Jack Parsons episode quite yeah. a bit because that was Jack Parsons' uh, uh, theology, I guess, mm-hmm. is how you would put it. Um and, you know, it's interesting based on like a lot of the stuff that we've talked around about occult in various episodes. It's primarily based on a system of symbology, mm-hmm. more, more so than actually like people thinking that they're uh, casting spells and like summoning lightning bolts and stuff like that. So it seems like symbology uh, would work its way pretty well into this. Yeah, it could. I mean, um, it, a couple of listeners that mentioned this connection said something about inherent issues with uh, duality, like duality being important to occult theology and that that, you know, is manifest in the division of the mind under bicameralism. Oh, OK. Anyway, I, I don't know enough to comment about it, but I thought that was interesting. A listener named Sean sent a great email with a bunch of really interesting thoughts. And one I want to mention was about a possible cause for the transition from bicameralism to consciousness. Quote, the subjunctive voice, and that's the subjunctive voice is when you say, like, if Christian were to give me all the money in his wallet, I could go buy lunch. You know, it's uh, it's the mode of grammar where you're entertaining a counterfactual. Hmm. Um, the subjunctive voice is used to imagine unreal scenarios and worlds. Could this have been a way in which consciousness took over the bicameral mind? Instead of hearing our ancestors' voices in our heads, we can now imagine, if my father were here, what would he tell me to do? Oh, wow. Or what would Jesus do? Oh, I like this because it touches on chronesthesia or, or mental time travel. It's yeah. Basically, basically just the hallmark of human consciousness that allows us to try and envision multiple uh, outcomes to a given scenario. Yeah, and a key part of what uh, Jane says about the nature of human consciousness, modern human consciousness, is the idea of envisioning time as a spatial dimension. Mm-hmm. Like that's a, an important part of what the mind space is, is it concretizes time and allows you to to sort of view it as a space. 
Right. So, guys, I have a crossover that I want to bring to your attention. Okay. I did a recent Brain Stuff episode that is based on an article on the How Stuff Works site that is about some recent research where they looked at uh, how well kids are able to focus on various tasks. And they found that children are able to focus better on their tasks when they think of themselves in the third person and specifically like way better when they think of themselves in the third person as an imaginary identity like Batman or Dora the Explorer. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I'm going to have to look at this study because my, my son has been doing this a lot where he'll suddenly talk about himself in the third person uh, as if he were a cat. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating, and it seems like it's somewhat connected to this. That's interesting. I mean, part of the uh, par- part of the whole thing in Jane's case about bicameralism is, like, the idea of identity in the self. And so, like, one of the things he identifies as regression toward the bicameral mind in people with uh, modern cases of, sch- of schizophrenia is not just hearing voices in the head, but also the dissociation or the dissolution of the sense of self. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Like that they sometimes lose a sense of first person. Well, in this case, I believe that the researchers theorized that the reason why Batman and Dora the Explorer were examples that worked so well for this was because the characters themselves embodied hard work. Hmm. Whereas like if they were – if the kids were just – you know, uh, in their own first person subjective point of view, they were more likely to blow it off. Well, I mean, I wonder if this could be compared to Jane's idea of what the ancient poets were like. So where the ancient poet might say, might not say, I need to work hard to compose a poem, right. but say, I am about to be possessed by this third entity, the muse. Oh. And the muse is going to speak a poem through me. Yeah. And actually what's happening is it's coming out of their non-dominant hemisphere. They are composing a poem, but they find it much easier and they're, they're very fluid and it just comes right out in meter and rhyme and all that as composed by this god, the muse. I think we're on to something here. Uh, somebody out there, you might get a dissertation out of this. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'll try to do one more uh, for this round. And this is going to be from our listener, Amanda, who says – Hey guys, my name is Amanda. I'm from Canada and religiously listen to your podcast. In regards to the latest two-part podcast, Bicameralism, I have a thought and question. When James describes consciousness, it almost seemed like the ability to conjure a mental image, among other things. I was wondering if he had any ideas about people with aphantasia. Ah, um, this is the abil- the inability to form mental images. Yeah, going back to a recent podcast of our, or not that recent, sometime in the past year or mm-hmm. a couple of years. Um if they are unable to have a mental image, does that mean they still have a bicameral mind or where does that leave them in the spectrum? I thought this was a really interesting question because uh, first I would say no, I do not think that means they have a bicameral mind. In fact, it would almost seem to me that they would be something like the very opposite of having a bicameral mind. Like because one of the things that uh, some people report uh, when they're, they're describing their experiences with aphantasia is they don't under- necessarily understand the difference between mental imagery and hallucination. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. they'll say like, wait a minute, you're seeing something that's not there. And it's kind of hard to explain, right? You're like, well, I'm not seeing it among all the things I'm seeing with my eyes. I'm seeing it in another place in my mind or something, right. which would be, according to Jane's, your mind space. But yeah, I thought this was a really interesting question. And I think this, this kind of question, I think, does highlight some of the, the big holes in the picture of bicameralism. Like as, as interesting as the theory is, 
there are just a lot of questions you can ask about it that are like, huh, I wonder how that fits in. It, it doesn't really seem to jive with the whole, the whole theory. Huh. Okay. So, well, this, this makes me wonder about, uh, about Gozer's role in all of this because <laughs> I've, I've previously commented, uh, at least on the blog and maybe on the show that if Gozer the Gozerian, uh, came and appeared to a bunch of individuals with aphantasia and said, um, choose the form of the destructor. Yeah. Uh, they would n- maybe not be able to choose the form of the destructor because they wouldn't be able to form a mental image of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. So that aside, what happened? Well, because part of the whole thing in Ghostbusters is Gozer the Gozerian has appeared to ancient people, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. a, it's essentially a, like a Babylonian, ancient Babylonian entity. Yeah. So. Uh, what was Gozer's interaction with an ancient uh, bicameral people? I always thought that the form that Gozer took when they first encounter her mm-hmm. was that was that. I don't know if there was that much thought put into the script. <laughs> but no, I think there was. I think there was. A, I think there was a lot of. But thought when they encounter the her and she's kind of got like the like makeup and the weird like tattered uh-huh. mummy outfit. That's what I thought was yeah. that was the Babylonian manifestation. And then she was like, oh, for this present day, you need to I form must choose some- something yeah. else. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's the thing. It's like Gozer realized humans today are a, a rather different organism in the way that they're they're thinking. Yeah. And like clearly she can read their thoughts and she's interacting with something that, that seems entirely different. I must update my form to match this new form of human cognition. Yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't work out very well for her. No, no, did not work. She's clearly she's just not an entity for uh, a post bicameral world. The one interesting comparison I'm thinking of now between aphantasia and bicameralism is the presence of the internal monologue. You know, we're reading about a lot of people talking about their experience of living with aphantasia. You know, they say, well, I never picture things in my head or I almost never do with any kind of lucidity. But instead, what I sort of hear when I'm thinking are words. Like I hear an internal monologue talking through the things I'm thinking about. Like well, a thought balloon in a comic book. Right. Yeah. Well, one of our listeners uh, asked this question after the, the the episode. They said, "What is what is the voice that you hear in your head when you're reading something? Yeah. You know? And that, that kind of throws you for a loop. Because obviously if you're reading, if you're reading, say, a Hunter S. Thompson book, you might be inclined to hear it <laughs> right. in Hunter S. Thompson's voice, or at least in Johnny Depp's Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson voice. Right. But if you're reading something else that you have no frame of reference for, and it's not the voice of a specific character, if it's just the narrator, what is that quote-unquote voice? Well, I mean, I think Jane's might have said that a possibility is when ancient peoples read before the transition away from the bicameral mind, instead of being conscious of reading what was happening was they were hearing a god speak the words to them as mm-hmm. their eyes read them off the page. Huh. And that would certainly uh, match up too with just the, the – uh, we, we touched on this. Uh, we discussed this in the episode, the, the reverence for written languages and, uh, and, uh, and hard-coded symbols. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, it looks like um, Carney's handing me uh, another uh, mail here. I'm going to read it here. This is from Yevgeny. Yevgeny writes and it says, writing you from the cold coasts of the Baltic Sea. Ah. My name, name is Yevgeny, uh, Yevgeny, or as I usually present myself for non-Slavic speakers, Jeff. I've been occasionally binging on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a podcast since 2014, but the recent episode on bicameral mind, a concept to which I introduced myself via, uh, 
Echopraxia from Peter Watts oh. made me finally write you. In the podcast, you mentioned that reading literature written by the authors of the times covered by meters of dust give you an uncanny feeling that you are reading something alien, as if a person's thought process is quite different from your own. So uh, I was wondering if you could share what piece of literature you were referring to specifically. I know. I was thinking of like ancient Babylonian and ancient Assyrian literature. So, mm -hmm. uh, like, uh, calling back to some of the texts that we, uh, we discussed in the Tower of Babel episode. Yeah, Tower of Babel episode. I think I also mentioned a couple in the first monster episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I, when I read those texts, I often have this feeling of, I don't know if there's just something that's getting lost in translation or, if it really is, I'm genuinely detecting that a different kind of human mind produced these things than the minds of people living today. And I don't mean just like a different culture. I mean, like, like there, there is no culture on earth today that feels like the mind that produced these. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know, I know in the episode we specifically mentioned the Iliad because the Iliad is an example that, uh, that James refers to. Yeah. You know um, what's interesting about that is I actually, in my past life, uh, worked on a book that was uh, analyzing a translation of the oldest copy of the Iliad in existence. Huh. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and it was – I don't speak a lick of Greek, but th this was the, – the people who were writing the book were all classical Greek scholars. Mm -hmm. They were translating it. My job was to, like, put the pages down and make it look nice and everything. And for me, I remember looking at these pages and thinking, like – this is it, it, no pun intended. Not the whole like it's all Greek to me, but literally like it, it looks alien. Hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, I should throw in real quick in in the original bicameral mind episode. I mentioned that there's a book titled "The Rage of Achilles" by Terence Hawkins that uh, mm -hmm. updates the Iliad for modern readers and incorporates the bicameral mind. Uh, I have since read that book and I I, I I highly recommend it. I have kind of a mini review of it on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Uh, one thing I do want to say in addition to what I just said is that it does seem time-dependent, this alien thing. So when you read this really, really ancient Assyrian, Babylonian literature and stuff, I don't detect the same stuff from like Iron Age literature of the same region. That mm -hmm. seems more like – that seems familiar. So you have Jenny says thanks and then he has a, a by the way that he adds, would you consider making an episode on Peter Watts' writing, especially the blind sight and uh, echoproxia? Vampires, <laughs> space travel, aliens all packed in the hardest sci-fi that a marine biologist could produce. Sounds like just the stuff to blow anyone's mind. Uh and an additional, by the way, uh, great thanks for the things you do. You are a true inspiration. We covered Blindsight in one of our summer reading episodes. Didn't yeah, we, we did. But, but that yeah. was my fiction fic. My fiction fic. <laughs> my fiction pick this year. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. I, and I read it as well. It, yeah, it's a fabulous book. I've not read uh, any of the subsequent uh, entries in that series. But I've, you guys haven't done a science of it yet. No, we haven't. So I've got an. I've got a copy of Echopraxia. It's sitting on my table, and I was planning to start reading it next week, <laughs> uh, independent of this email. So, uh, yeah, obviously, uh, Jet. Jeff, Yevgeny, <laughs> you should go back and listen to our episode, uh, our summer reading episode this year. And yeah, we, yeah, we, we get into it a little bit. We try to avoid spoilers. I don't know exactly what to do about novels like that where discussing the science of it is inherently to spoil the plot of the book. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, maybe we'll have to do some kind of bonus spoiler-laden discussion of it for people who have read it or don't plan to read it and uh, and talk about all of the weird stuff about consciousness and biology. All right, Joe, do you have uh, some more bicameral feedback here to share before uh, Carney uh, tells us our time is up? Yeah, a couple quick things if you guys don't mind. 
One of them is from our listener, Melanie, who says some very nice things, wanted to talk about bicameralism. And she says, I think people seem to strive for a lack of conscious thought sometimes, such as meditation or the much sought after flow state. Absolutely. I'm an illustrator and a lot of my work, inking, coloring, rendering, etc., can be done somewhat on autopilot without a lot of conscious thought. In fact, it's often harder to create when I'm overthinking it and without a lot of stimulation, my conscious mind gets bored rather quickly. That's actually where you come in. <laughs> For the right. past few months, I've been listening to podcasts as I work, mostly stuff to blow your mind, which keeps the active part of my brain occupied and interested so that my hands can do the work. And in turn, working on a project keeps me focused so that I pay better attention to what you're saying. Splitting my brain this way seems to make both parts uh, work better and help me be more relaxed and productive. Within the bicameral theory, I suppose that you are the gods whose voices I choose to occupy my mind. <laughs> anyway, keep up the great work with the show. I always look forward to new episodes since I go through them pretty quickly. Uh, thanks, Melanie. I think that's really interesting. And I think the flow state is one of the most fascinating examples of the, of reduction or limited consciousness that we usually experience because the flow state is like when you're at the height of having fun and feeling good about what you're doing. But I agree that in that flow state, there does appear to often be a sense of reduced consciousness. It's almost like being hypnotized. You're not really aware of yourself and what you're doing. Right. Yeah. We've actually heard that from a lot of artists who are listeners of the show who have a similar experience to Melanie. And I'm thinking of the ones that I've met in real life, like Meg Hutchison and J.M. Dragunas, who we, we met mm -hmm. at uh, C2E2 last year. Um but yeah, it seems like that is a common thing that they're using podcasts to sort of shut down the part of their mind that's actively thinking about the, the work in front of them. Yeah. So I like, know when I, cause I, I do illustration, I'm nowhere near as good as those people, but whenever I'm working on illustration or coloring specifically, like she was mentioning, I usually have a movie on in the background and that huh. helps me do the same thing. Huh. I mean, I do wonder if it sort of helps you harness the muse, the old sense of the, if yeah. the muse is the non-dominant hemisphere taking over the creative process, if you can sort of like, sort of like tie up the executive function of the dominant hemisphere doing something else, uh, you can sort of let that, that, that non-dominant hemisphere take over mm -hmm. more effectively. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, hmm. th I, th I think further research is required here. Well, it also makes me think, too, of some of the, the various rituals that are used to or have been in, used to invoke not only a meditative state but some sort of a prayer state, some sort of yeah. communion Transcendental. state. Yeah. We've talked about saying the rosary before along yeah. those lines. Finally, uh, our listener Andrew sent us a, a email that is too long to read, but he does say a lot of really interesting stuff in it about the bicameral mind. And one of the things he points out is I think perhaps my biggest objection to the theory. It's one of my biggest questions, which is about Jane's definition of consciousness. So Jane's has this definition he establishes in the book. I think he does a really interesting job of characterizing what he thinks consciousness is. It's this metaphor-based mind space where you can entertain thoughts and ideas. Mm -hmm. Jeff says, I consider it given that to be conscious of something is to experience it. I think awareness is essentially the same as consciousness, and I don't believe that there is an unconscious experience experience, but I do think it's obvious that our minds can unconsciously gather information and present it to consciousness later. We give examples of that in the book, like you can unconsciously use your brain to do things, but he's saying 
consciousness and experience are the same thing. So he continues, I don't see how a bicameral person can hallucinate without conscious experience of those hallucinations. What is an unconscious hallucination? Uh, and then he goes on to say, I think Jane's definition of consciousness is ad hoc. I think he wrongly defines consciousness as being what we experience as modern humans with the defining feature being internal dialogue. So, so I may be completely off base here because I wasn't on this bicameral mind episode. But when he says hallucinating unconsciously, the first thing I think of from previous episodes that we've done is experiencing the supernatural. So like – if you feel like you've seen a ghost, mm-hmm. that could be that. Uh, but you'd be conscious of it. So I think what, I see, what okay, he's saying yeah. is, what does it mean for a non-conscious person to hallucinate? Mm. So he's saying to, to hallucinate is to experience the detection of something that is not physically there in reality. Yeah. But if you're not conscious, how could you experience it? Now, I'm not quite sure I'm one. I think that's a really interesting point, but I'm not quite sure I'm one over by it because I think of the analogy of like a computer. So imagine you've got a computer that is set up to detect things in a room and it detects maybe it's got like a motion sensor when a thing could walk in front of it. Now, you could implant a computer virus on that computer that could make it sense people walking by the motion sensor even when nobody's walking by the motion sensor. In in that way, the computer would be hallucinating motion. But that doesn't mean the computer is conscious of that motion, right? Mm. It's all just a machine. So I'm not sure I'm convinced by this, but I think it is a really interesting objection and it's worth considering. What is the difference between Jane's idea of consciousness and the idea of experience itself? Is there nothing that it would be like to be a bicameral person or would there be something that it was like to be a bicameral person just very different than what it's like to be us? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's quite it's quite a conundrum. Um, You know, I thought about a lot of this, too. Uh, in, in reading, uh, Terrence Hawkins, uh, The Rage of Achilles, where he, yeah. he has the, he sets himself up with the challenge of, of writing about characters who have a bicameral mind, but also writing about them in a way that you were gonna, we're gonna also feel, uh, we were also gonna be able to sympathize with them, empathize with them to some extent, mm-hmm. as if they are, you know, normal humans. Uh, how do you, Truly, how do you imagine the the mindset of a of an unconscious human? I wonder if somebody could develop a derivative theory of the bicameral mind that gets rid of the idea that ancient humans were not conscious, or at least reformulates that to say their consciousness was different than ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I think it's entirely possible that it there was something going on in the brains of ancient humans that caused them to hear voices and hallucinate far more often than we do today. And those hallucinations may have been of a different sort of relevance to their lives, more useful, more practical, more accurate than hallucinations are today. But at the same time, they were conscious in some sense. They had an experience. They weren't hallucinating robots. They were people kind of like us, just different. So uh, it, it all comes back to the same conundrum, right? What is consciousness? Yeah. What am I experiencing right now? Ultimately, that's Andrew's big question. He says he, he like it, like he's got a lot of thoughts about the theory, but he doesn't think it ultimately sheds light on the hard problem of consciousness. The, mm-hmm. the question you just asked, we all have this thing, but what is it? All right. I have one final listener mail and this comes to us from Meg and she's re- responding to one of our Ig Nobel episodes. Uh, I believe it was. 
the second one. Uh, let's see. She says, hi there. Uh, there is a lot to be said about this, but most concisely, as a twin, I can tell you that my experience and the experience of my identical twin in recognizing ourselves in photos was that we each always saw the other. As in, if there was a photo of me, by and large, my conclusion was that it was a photo of my sister. The reverse was true for her, of course. It seems to be that we spent far more time looking at the other person than we did at ourselves or at a mirror, plus a mirror is a reverse image. Mm. Additionally, we did have issues of self and referred to ourselves in the plural despite our parents' best efforts to have us be individuals and not a unit. Uh, they were aware of that problem with twins, but we persisted unintentionally. <laughs> Love your show, Mech. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. The, the the study that we focused on just had to do with um, with self-facial um, recognition in identical twins. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is different with identical twins and what that reveals about self-facial recognition for the, for the rest of us. I saw something recently that is t- very tangentially connected to this. But uh, you remember in that episode, I brought up the idea that the facial recognition software on our phones maybe would have difficulty mm-hmm. uh, just telling you and your twin apart, right? Yeah. Uh, apparently, a drag queen tried to trick the facial recognition software by like being out of drag and then in drag to see if it could work or not and mm-hmm. and it, it depended on the phone i believe but, oh okay yeah yeah but that that makes me wonder as well like depending on what kind of costumed identities i guess that you create well let me tell you this uh, anyone out there who's looking uh, to conduct a, a study i bet if you do a facial recognition drag queen study, you will definitely win an Ig Nobel Prize. Oh, I mean, I think we've been doing yeah, this long enough go. to know what they like. Yeah. And I bet they would like that They study. would. Yeah. That's a great idea. All right. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And thanks to Carney for uh, bringing out all this uh, wonderful email. Thanks to all of you for writing to us and sharing your thoughts, your questions, your and your insights and your personal experiences related to these topics. And hey, if you just listened to this and you're like, I want to add too, I want you to read my thing on the next listener mail episode. There's so many ways that you can get in touch with us. There's Facebook, for instance. We've got our regular Facebook page. We've also got our discussion module. We're also on Twitter. Tumblr and Instagram. There's also stuff to blow your mind.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.